Flourishing Education, the podcast where I share the powerful, imperfectly perfect conversations with disruptors of the education system in the UK and beyond. I would really like to encourage you to take a listen and see what's possible as I ask the question, how can we change the way we educate and parent our children and young people so that they can truly become flourishing, curious, lifelong learners and young adults. I hope you enjoy these episodes as much as I've enjoyed recording them and creating them. Please do not hesitate to connect with me on LinkedIn, Fabian Vales, and or, and or on Twitter at FlourishingHG. And please let me know what's your favourite episode or favourite part of the podcast. I look forward to hearing from you and in the meantime I truly hope you are thriving and flourishing. Wishing you a fabulous day wherever you are in the world. Hello and welcome to another powerful Imperfectly Perfect conversation for the Flourishing Education podcast. Today I'm delighted to bring our new guest, Amy Melion, a very warm welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's so fun to be here. No, lovely. I'm excited to have the to have this conversation with you. So, Amy, I'm going to start with the conversation. Oh, the, this conversation with the question I ask all of my guests, um, which is really the only question I give my my guests, and then we fly from there. Um, and it's the following could you tell us a little bit more about you where you are in the world um you know physically where you're localized but also a bit more about your journey thus far yes um so i my name is amy mill iron and i am located currently in Texas in a small, small town called Burton, which sits in between Houston and Austin. So uh, I've lived in various places in the United States, but we've called Texas home for the last eight years or so. And it's been a really fun journey to discover um, how we fit in this place and how we might be able to serve our community and receive from our community and be able to share our gifts and talents and allow others to do the same. So I'm excited to share more about that today. Wonderful. That sounds really intriguing. So it's a love it. Um, so do you want to tell us a bit more about what you do on a daily basis then? Shall we start with yeah. that? So I mean, I should give a little background here that uh, I, I'm a mother and I love that role so much. I have two children. They are 18 and 24. And I've learned so much through my role as a mom that has helped me in everything else that I do. And I cherish those opportunities on a daily basis. I'm also a wife and, and many other things, friend, daughter, um, you name it. And what I love is being able to to utilize those relationships um, and what I've learned through those relationships to empower the relationships I build in other environments that I find myself in or that I curate. And so I have had the incredible privilege of 
um, earning my master's degree in education and in curriculum and instruction. And so I've taught in classrooms. I've taught in private schools, public schools. I've owned my own preschools. I've um, had the opportunity to work in the corporate environment for a media company and be able to write curriculum to help people connect through um, to media uh, within a classroom. And that was a really neat experience to take my background and what I had actually gone to school for <laughs> to create curriculum for a very specific need. And that at the time I didn't realize was going to help me so much for what I do now. And although media is very different from farming, which is where I am currently finding myself, uh, it has helped me see that you can take something that you feel is very worthy for people to be able to connect with and see how they might be able to connect through those experiences that are able to be applied to their place. And so what I mean by that is we have um, had the opportunity after growing up in Arizona to move to Texas and a long standing dream was to be able to purchase land or at least land some way to be able to connect to land. I just had this incredible desire growing up after spending time on my grandpa's little amount of land um, visiting to be able to actually have some that I could call my own, that I could grow vegetables and fruits to be able to feed my family so I could walk barefoot in the grass so I could feel grounded. I knew I needed that and I craved it. And when we got to Texas, we had the opportunity to do that. And so uh, my husband and I and our kids were able to purchase 12 acres um, in a different part of Texas and just kind of experiment. I didn't know how to be a farmer necessarily, but I knew that I was craving that understanding. And so I went and got as much training as I could through internships, volunteering for several years. I went and talked to farmers at the farmer's markets and asked them how they went about farming and uh, asked them what they did and why they did it so that I could decide how I wanted to be a farmer. And I discovered regenerative agriculture after talking to several farmers and seeing there was a difference in um, how people were farming. And so I initially got trained through Holistic Management International to be able to understand how to apply holistic principles and practices to our land. And I thought it was really fun to be able to see everything as a whole. And I wanted to invite other people to that space so that they could learn along with me. So the first thing that we did was bought a bunch of picnic tables. Um, we didn't know a lot of people yet. And so we thought, well, let's just buy a bunch of picnic tables and put them out. And let's just start inviting our local community to come and enjoy meals with us to come maybe for like an hour long tour. We didn't even really have anything in the beginning. It was just raw land, but there were so many people that were like me that were craving the ability to just get out of the city and put their feet on that soil, that that was a welcome gift to them to just be able to come sit and enjoy a meal at a picnic table that they brought themselves and just go on a little walk in our little 12 acres. It grew from there to where we had a chance to um, expand, I guess. And I started offering the ability for people that were local in our community that had a specialty that they were engaged in, maybe beekeeping or a culinary art of some kind. And I would invite them to come speak. They had more expertise than me at the time and be able to invite the community to come learn. And that was really fun. I thought, oh, the community really wants to be involved in this. Let's see where this goes. So the more I learned and the more classes I took and the more I read and the more I applied 
applied, you learn a lot from application, <laughs> a lot of things that you need to learn from failure. Um, and I thought, okay, this is this is inviting to people to be able to come and feel vulnerable with me. I could wait until I felt like it was quote perfect, or I could say, hey, come along with me while I'm learning too. And I think that that was the best choice I could have ever made. There were so many opportunities for kids and families to come. And so we offered ways for people to take part if they were homeschool families. They could come for a whole semester and just be on the farm for one day a week, an entire day for a whole semester at a time. We had summer camps that we ran. We did little preschool days for like an hour every Wednesday. Um, you name it, six days a week at least, we had events of some kind where people could come learn what I was learning. And I was having fun as I was learning, developing curriculum to go along with it so that there was meaningful intention behind what people were being able to learn. And that's when I really discovered we needed to do something about helping more people than just those that could get to our farm be able to, to learn how to do this. Wow, phenomenal. And so the linguist in me wants to take a few steps back to like the mm -hmm. beginning of what you said and start with some of the concepts you shared with us. So mm -hmm. uh, you talked about holistic approach to the land and I assume to, you know, in the same way that we talk about holistic well-being for humans. So could we start with that? How would you define this? Well, the best way I can describe it is nature defines itself in holes. If you really think about it, everything that happens in nature impacts something else in nature and we are nature. And so we can't separate ourselves from that, although people try, <laughs> but we are a part of nature. And so when I talk about holistic um, management or just thinking of something as a whole, I'm talking about considering everybody who's involved, who are the stakeholders? I would even venture to say, what are the stakeholders? Because um, when I think about decisions here that we make on our current ranch, which is 120 acres, when we are making these decisions, we are not only considering the people who are impacted or involved, like the employees or the families or our local community or the children or the schools nearby, but we're really also focusing on all of those living things that we either can or can't see, meaning the grasses that are growing, the microbes that are living under our feet. Um, we want to be able to make sure everything is nourished and everything is thriving because if those microbes in that soil are not healthy, it is not growing healthy food for our livestock or us to eat. And so every decision that we make always points back to that. And so for us, it's a decision-making matrix and helping us be able to see that holism is where we want to focus our energy. Amazing. And then therefore, you also talked about regenerative farming. And regenerative has been a word that has suddenly popped up, right? It's a lot in, in the vocabulary of many people. So we talk about regenerative leadership, regenerative education, yeah, obviously. So would you also define that for our listeners who may not be familiar with that terminology? I will, but there's a disclaimer here. I will start with saying I feel like regenerative agriculture we're kind of in the Wikipedia age of developing that um, definition. 
And when I think about it that way, you know, Wikipedia takes the opinions and data from lots of different people to over time develop a pretty acceptable definition of something. And I, th I think we're in that stretching and growing and pulling and pushing stage of developing that definition. So I will explain what it means to us in our context here. And it may mean something a little bit different to someone else right now. So for us, we really focus on regenerative agriculture um, being a way for us to apply our holistic principles and practices where we do take into account what I just mentioned before, meaning all stakeholders' ideas, holding soil as the focus, and helping our community be able to thrive and provide a quality of life for everybody who's involved. And when we talk about the soil in particular, we're also mentioning that there are things that we need to do just as general practices to be able to protect the soil so that it can do what it needs to do to thrive, which is things like cover cropping or no-till or at least getting to no-till um, or making sure that we're rotating our animals in a holistic planned grazing way or um, making sure that there's plenty of rest and utilizing tools appropriately that we have at our disposal at any given time. But most of all, knowing how to do all of that within the context of where we are located. So if I look at how we might apply those principles here, it is very different than how we would even apply it to our previous farm because the land was different. The people in our community were different. The needs were different. And so for us, regenerative agriculture is not just the land. It's not just how we manage the land. It's how we manage the land so that it can support what nature has taught us so that we're using her lessons to replicate and so that we can meet the needs of the community above the ground and below our feet. Oh, yes, guys, so, so love this. Um, and so that leads me to, to the other question I had when you were talking about how you were learning and growing with, with other people, right? And it reminds me of my own journey for the last two years through the conversations for the podcast, where I feel like that's exactly what I've been doing. I've been um, learning with and through others. Um, and I wonder whether <clears throat> for you, alongside this news of like this approach of holistic you know um and regenerative agriculture and farming whether you feel that there has been a um both a healing and a a, a shift in your approach compared to your upbringing and to the schooling and the conditioning that you perhaps you received. Ooh, I like that question. Let's let's sort this out. <laughs> I haven't been asked this before, I don't think, and I'm excited about this. I will say that to no fault or blame of anyone, just knowing my age, I'm in my late 40s and and the time in which I've grown up and been exposed to what's been available. When I was younger, it was primarily, you know, fast food was fun. Friday nights, we went to fast food and the playgrounds that were available because that was a way for, for working parents to be able to have a break, grab a meal, let kids run off some energy. And um, it wasn't until, and this is just one little example, but it wasn't until I became a parent and I had been a parent for a little while that I realized, oh, I, I don't want my kids to <laughs> be eating food like that. I didn't really realize what kind of impacts it might be having. Now, I am 
I'm not a stickler about things. I think everything in moderation and we certainly have found ourselves at fast food places from time to time. So this is not a, uh, I'm not knocking this for anybody, but if I think about how, what was the norm back then that we are already changing now that this is it and how we feed our family and how we understand how food impacts our brain health and how our gut health is connected to soil health. Now I am, I am not an expert in that, but I do understand that soil health and gut health are connected and I work with uh, personally and professionally nutritionists that are helping me learn more about those connections so that not only I can help myself be healthy, but so that I can potentially be able to incorporate it into what we help the community learn, but so that my family also can learn and be exposed to it too. And working on land and being outside and knowing growing up that I needed that and knowing all of those years that I needed that uh, and then finally getting it and realizing that my soul is happy and content and I feel most calm when I can be outside running my th fingers through the grass going on a walk or I can be noticing the bugs that are increasing that most of the time people would be squishing and I'm looking at it celebrating biodiversity. <laughs> um, and when I'm able to bring other people along for the ride to be able to experience that, it's pretty great. I'll give an example of um, something pretty wonderful that happened here a couple months ago. We had some we have several families that live here on the ranch and one of the families had invited some friends to stay for a couple of days and they live in the city. They don't have access to a whole lot of green spaces. And when they came out to the ranch for a couple of days, they did a little recap with us at the end to tell us what their experience was like. And it was so inspiring to hear their reaction to just having the opportunity to be here, not even with anything planned or anything. They said that they hadn't walked barefoot and laid in the grass as much as they did in that 48 hours in their whole life, that they hadn't cried tears of just relief. They couldn't even really name why the tears were falling, but just that the relief of just being outside of being able to connect in that way was so healing to them. And it was almost like a mirrored um, description of what I have been feeling in my own healing journey to hear them say those words back because that's exactly how I feel. And, and I think this is so beautiful because this is, and I don't know what your thoughts are, but my own journey, nature has been my coach. And so in my daily, my daily walks with my dog is where I get a lot of joy and I, I get a lot of my reflections done in nature um but this is like you say we live more and more in cities and so this is less and less done and there's that disconnect from from nature mm -hmm. um and I'm not surprised that people obviously come to your ranch and and feel that you know that space as a healing space it's really exciting mm -hmm. um but I also wonder whether you know the other the other thing I wanted us to explore is this um, how important it is for us to to first do this part. So you were saying, you know, it's been a journey for you, right? You now have a much bigger ranch than the the twelve hectares that you had before, right? So it hasn't been like it hasn't happened overnight. Oh gosh, no. <laughs> 
<laughs> and so one of the things I'd love to explore is, is you know, there are there, the, the stories we're hearing is either the story of, you know, business as usual and its growth is the answer, the story of, you know, this is all falling apart and there's loads of crises and, you know, and we doomed. And then the reason I pivoted and now I have those, you know, imperfectly perfect conversations on the podcast with, you know, disruptors and innovators like yourself is because I truly believe that, you know, the focusing on on those stories that we don't hear a lot of is really important, but also that those stories are shared in a, it didn't happen all overnight. And, you know, it's a process and it's an ongoing journey. Um, so does that resonate with you? Is that is that what it feels like? Gosh, I feel like I could go in a million directions. So I'm just gonna go for it here and say, I personally uh, think about this work and this passion and this connection that I desire in a way that oftentimes feels conflicting. Sometimes I feel hopeful and sometimes I feel like I'm living uh, more on the the realist side, maybe of just reality. What is reality? Reality is that the IPCC has put out (laughs) all of this data for us to know related to climate change, what we're headed towards and the things that we really could do to make a difference and and slow down the concerns. Um, We can't even really rectify everything at this point because some things are just, we just can't, but there are things that we can do. And not only will they help and be positive, but they will help infuse that joy and that connection into people and community into the planet and it will be a positive change. And so when you look at Paul Hawken and his work and taking that data with his teams of people to be able to put it in digestible formats through his books like Drawdown and Regenerative, well, what's the other title, but his most recent book. Um, And when you think about how you can look at that and try to help people connect on that real big scale, sometimes that can feel too big to people. Like, oh my gosh, that's just too much. I don't know. I have to take care of my kids and make dinner and I need to take them to soccer practice and what do I do? And somebody's going to need to fix it, but it can't be me because I don't know what to do. So I can sometimes get there, but usually I don't stay there very long because I also know that there are micro things that I can do that make a difference, not only in my life, but in my family's life. And then I can start thinking a little bigger and a little bigger and a little bigger. And it helps me realize that there's that big in between. And that's the part where we just get to be messy and experiment and see what works and be okay with the fact that it's not all going to and For a lot of people, that's really uncomfortable. For a lot of people, they don't want to do something unless they know that it's going to work out in the end. And I've never been that way. I've just said, let's try. (laughs) Let's try it and see and let's learn from it and not know what the end is going to be. And that seems uh, counterintuitive sometimes to people who know me because my past, I was much more perfectionist. And this has been something that in my healing journey, I've needed to, to break so that I can actually feel that joy every day of learning through the process. And um, for others who want to be able to have that hope, I, I like to share that 
when I start feeling like I'm going down that, oh no, it's too big phase, I just, I try to search for gratitude immediately. If I start feeling it in my body, if I start feeling it in my heart, like, oh, this is feeling too big, maybe this work that we're doing isn't going to make enough of an impact or whatever those, those thoughts are that, that aren't filled with hope, then I immediately stop myself in my tracks and just list off everything that I'm grateful for. And it's an amazing reframe so that you realize, no, this is what I'm supposed to do right now. And that's all I need to know is what do I need to do right now? And so powerful as a practice, right? That gratitude is, is, is immediate almost, right? The, the relief we feel. Mm -hmm. In that is David's going back to that locus of concern versus the locus of control is like, what can I do right now that is going to help? <laughs> mm -hmm. right. And you said also in your in the examples you were sharing, you know, you're talking you you're talking about like beekeepers and and dietitians, you know, learning like connecting with different people. This made me think of the conversation I had with uh, Daniel Christian Val. Um, and his work, obviously, in in uh, in Mallorca or Menorca, I think he is, um, you know, working on land. But it, this weaving that he was talking about, so, you know, being weavers and connectors. How, again, how does that concept fit in with the work that you, you've been doing? Or do you use another terminology to describe what, what you're currently doing? You know, I love the term weaving and it wasn't until I kind of got connected to thriving, thriving children and everything else that I'm starting to be involved in on a more international scale that I really started hearing the term weaving. It's probably used here in, in certain contexts, but I just hadn't really thought about it that way. And I love it. And I really think that that's what we really are doing. And it probably would help if I explain what our, my current work, the businesses that I'm involved in do, because it will help provide more context here. So when we had our previous farm um, and I was writing the curriculum and I, and I knew that it was making an impact and people were traveling far distances and, and the things that we were offering were selling out and to the, got to the point where we were uh, needing to turn people away. I would hire people to stand on the curb to turn people away because we had maxed out at our capacity. And the whole time I kept thinking, how do you do this? If I have only 12 acres and it can only reach the people who can get to this location, how do you create something that is place-based so it can be applied wherever people are and also be able to have this kind of impact and feed the souls of the people who are doing the work as well as the people who are coming to learn and experience it and create that community together. And that is where the idea of launching the nonprofit came from. So Fearless Farmers is our nonprofit and we've had several iterations of what this was going to look like. Right now, what it looks like is people who are really interested in creating community by weaving ecological literacy in and out of different opportunities that people of all ages have so that they can get grounded in that ecological literacy and apply a regenerative lens to whatever they do in their life. That's our goal. We're not necessarily trying to raise farmers, although great if we do, we're not necessarily trying to raise soil scientists. Again, great if we do, but what we want people to do is be able to go through our programs that we have written and created so that they can apply 
these principles and practices and offer educational opportunities to their community. So imagine that there is someone maybe that is uh, a former teacher, it doesn't have to be a former teacher, I'm just using this as an example. And they really want to be able to work and use their innate skills and their learned skills to be able to offer educational opportunities to their community. They can go through our program, which comes in two different forms, either a fast-paced uh, cohort that lasts for uh, 10 weeks, or they can take our slower pace that lasts for five months. And it is online. It meets weekly or every other week, depending on which format you pick. And during that course, they are learning through meeting weekly with a cohort. They are traveling through the content through a learning management system, and then also through a pretty hefty uh, workbook that allows them to journal and create a portfolio during that entire time of what they're learning. And what they're learning is what we feel is the context that would help for them to be able to apply this place-based learning wherever they are. And that means holistic management principles and practices, what we consider regenerative agriculture concepts and principles and practices. And then when they finish that course, then they come to our ranch for a week and they apply everything that they've learned here at the ranch so they can practice. And then they're able to take that certification that they get from us and teach this material in environments where they are, whether that's in a school or on a farm or in an after-school program. And our hope is that we are creating these communities or little hubs where we have teachers in schools, we have homeschool co-ops, we have farmers and ranchers nearby where they're all going through our training together and they are weaving this ability to utilize this curriculum in and out of those environments. So students maybe that are in a classroom are learning it in the classroom from their teacher who's gone through our training and then they're going to the farm nearby that's also gone through our training. They're creating these long and short-term projects that are going back and forth and it's all according to place. And so even though we're based in Texas, what we teach isn't necessarily going to be, you know, gardening 101 for Texas because we have a long growing season. We teach more on the principles level uh, so that people can get connected with their own community and do that. So we, in addition, have our ranch that's also in production. So we raise sheep and layer chickens and broiler chickens. We have a commercial kitchen being uh, built right now so that we can teach cooking classes to really bring it full circle. And we have a huge market garden. We also discovered recently that a poultry processing facility that we were going to be using for our own uh, poultry needed to shut down quickly, which left us in a bind and it left local farmers near us in a bind. And so we launched a, um, processing facility too that's being placed right now so that this fall we're able to actually help our farmers locally be able to get their meats processed. So we hope people come and learn on site as well as through our ranch itself and then through our nonprofit through the training programs. Phenomenal and and you've mentioned something several times place-based Yes. and uh, that reminded me of, of the work that I've explored recently. So Meg Wheatley, Deborah Freeze, you know, being localized in the local culture, um, which, of course, for, for someone like me who's a linguist and, and, and specialist in cultural agility, you know, I, I felt it's really important that anything that we do, we just anchor back into the local community, which is what you, you did too. But obviously... Um, I've explored some of that. So to me, that that terminology sort of makes sense. 
but I would love you to clarify further what you mean both for myself and for the learners who may not understand that terminology. Mm -hmm. So again, I, I always learn best by example, so let me give an example because this probably helps anchor it. What we hope people through our um, nonprofit learn is how to apply what they've learned to their location. So a lot of background information is uh, taught, is practiced to get to the point where when the learners, and when I'm saying learners in this context, I'm talking about the adults who are going through the training program. When the learners are going through that training program, they're able to apply what they have learned to scenarios. We call them quests. Think of them as like simulations. So we have embedded these simulations throughout the curriculum so that they can practice these decision-making um, models so that they can practice developing these holistic goals that are related to their place so that they can get good at it as they are going through the courses so they can turn around and help their learners that they teach in the future get good at it too. So what we like to do is since we're teaching this all from a perspective of farming, we like to throw in farming examples. So let's say for example, a uh, farmer, this is one of our quests, a farmer is uh, has a problem, and in this case, we say Farmer Lena has an issue. There was um, a, ch a mobile chicken tractor that was stuck in the mud, and this chicken tractor had chickens that were laying eggs that the farmer was counting on to be able to collect the eggs, to sell the eggs, to make money as one of the enterprises for the farmer, and this chicken tractor can't be moved, and so by the time the learners have gotten to maybe some of these quests, they have learned a lot of information about farming. They've learned about the gross profit analysis of that enterprise of the eggs. They've learned about what it takes to keep the chicken healthy so that the chicken is able to move along. And so they have all of this background information and they get to the simulation and we ask them, what would you do? And we pair them up with people and we give them these test questions. And the test questions have things like thinking about the environmental, social, and financial impacts of what happened, thinking about what's the root cause of what's going on, what's the gross profit analysis, and what's going to happen if you can't solve this problem, or what would it take to solve this problem? Who are the people in your community that might be able to help? Who, what do you need from this? There are lots of questions that we go through and we teach them how to do that. And we have them partner up so that they can do it together and then come together as a community and share what their solutions were. And then in our case, we use examples that we've actually experienced. So if we're the ones teaching it, then we can say, hey, those were great suggestions. Kind of wish you actually were around when we were dealing with that problem because maybe your solution would have been better than ours, but let us tell you how we solved that problem. So that example that I just gave, we use in our curriculum to show as an example how you can build a quest that's place-based. And when I'm teaching it, I say, okay, that happened on our farm and we had a big problem. We tried to bring someone's truck in to be able to move it, it wouldn't move. We couldn't figure out how to actually get all the chickens out and put them somewhere else because we really didn't have somewhere else to put them because everything that we do is rotationally grazing our animals. So they needed to be out on pasture, but they were in that muddy water that was gonna make them sick if they didn't stay you know, out or if they stayed out in that water too long and we couldn't keep them cooped up in their little chicken tractor too long because that's not healthy for them either. So we reached out to our community and we said, 
here's a picture of what we're dealing with. What would you do to help solve this problem? And, and the community came up with a really awesome answer. They said, build bridges. Let us just bring scraps of whatever we have and let's build bridges so that we can get the chickens from their chicken tractor where they hop out and they're walking across bridges so that they can get to dry land. And it is the clunkiest, most beautiful picture that I have of how our community came together to bring pallets and ladders and tables and scraps of things. And these chickens survived because our community came and brought us things and came up with an idea that we couldn't come up with on our own. And we were able to solve that problem till the land dried out and we could move the tractor again. And what happens is when we show through our training what these quests can look like to be place-based, that was according to what happened on my farm. Then we encourage people to think back either through issues that you've dealt with before and come up with your own quests or um, develop, develop them as you go, as you're coming up with a problem. Because when you're farming and you're working with nature, things happen all the time. No day ever happens like you think it's going to. And so what are some examples of how we can help it become a place-based um, opportunity to work through that decision-making matrix. And that is the basis of our curriculum is to help people be able to do that. And that's also why um, it doesn't matter if you want to be a farmer or not, because that's good practice of how you can be able to apply that in other parts of your life too. And um, that example is, is so good because then it's just, it sort of links to what I'm currently looking at which is community well-being and how we, we create community well-being um, in educational settings specifically but community well-being right and and one question I had because you've you've alluded to that right you've talked about community so your example was like you know individuals coming together for the greater good not just of other human beings but actually in this case more than humans like the chicken you know for that greater good so to me that's exactly the like the importance of a flourishing individual that then creates a flourishing community a flourishing we for a flourishing us which is the planet and you know more than us human the the the, the grass the soil all of those things so again how how relevant is is that of those concepts to 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 you to your work and also then then there'll be a follow-up question of you know very often what I find really interesting and and given that you're talking about chicken and eggs is this conversation I often have with people around is it first that you need to have flourishing individuals so you can have a flourishing community or actually can you have a flourishing community so that then the individuals start even if they were struggling they can start healing and you know like the, the people who came and in your farm and really enjoyed the walking in the grass and all of those things so sorry I've given you two questions in one but <laughs> well well come back to it if I've missed anything but I'm gonna just go for this what came to mind is we've adopted an ethos to actually here within our organizations um one is that we're going to be leaders who take imperfect action. And two, that we are going to appropriately use the word and and hold each other accountable to that. And so the first thing that came to mind was when you said we need flourishing individuals first or flourishing community first, I feel like that's a really appropriate use of the word and. 
I can think of personal times in my life where um, I was going through a tough time uh, years ago in my first marriage when I was going through a divorce. I it was very much survival mode for me, and I needed to be able to have a supportive community. I wasn't really in a place to be able to uh, give very much because <laughs> I was just needing to get through each day as a single mom. And and then there have been other times in my life where things have been wonderful and stable and we've been able to be that community for other people and then there's times where it's 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 balanced out more and when I think about this work here I think about how there's always inner work that people can be doing so that they can help themselves thrive and oftentimes when you do that inner work and you're thriving then you can then be able to give to your community in a better way of course I also am so appreciative of whenever individuals have done that inner work and they're able to just show up big and become that inspiration that helps build that community. And you know who those people are because they give you goosebumps when you're around them because you just think, oh, that's that joy that I'm seeking. I want, how did they get there? What did they do? It's probably their own journey, but I just want to be able to see what helps make it happen and how can I do that for myself and how can I give back? So I, I wouldn't be able to choose. I would have to say that it's both. <laughs> and um, and the imperfect action piece is also the piece where that's a reminder that we always have to give ourselves to. It comes back to that experimentation, how if we wait, then we're not gonna get anything done. So let's just try the best that we can and learn as we go. But what was the other part of your question? I have forgotten. So no, so that that's that's amazing, and I I I completely agree that you know and 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 <laughs> right. It's uh, um very often because of that overschooling we've all received, the the Cartesian you know reductionist approach is always you know and. Uh, and uh, and very much uh, it's either or it's black and white that is also part of that so thank you for for challenging what I said <laughs> in that is in that aspect I think that's that's very important I think the other one was um the beginning of the question was around uh you know do, have, have you found that you know you use the word thriving but it's sort of like thriving individual thriving communities thriving um you know planets and and is that also part of of what you're you're creating here as in like well-being for 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 the the individual human being but also then for the greater community you know where you are and then beyond like global community and then the us as in not just us human human beings but also um, the animals and and mother earth and like the soil and all of those things is that also what you're aiming for yes and it is complex it's not complicated it's complex there are lots of layers to that and I can see it all and I can see how it's interrelated that all of that is interrelated and so for me it's just a matter of having the time and the space to be and the financial resources, which gratefully here, we have founding funders that are incredible and have made this be able to happen. And when you have the ability to have that space to create those layers and help build those relationships, that's where the weaving comes in. And when you think about how 
what I described before, if you're going to build hubs like that, where you have schools and you have parents and you have farmers and ranchers and you have people in the community that are all working together, when you're running businesses that, like we are, because it's still a nonprofit and a for-profit business that have to function as businesses, you're also thinking about how to weave all of those people together at the same time that you want everything to be able to continue to regenerate and thrive and, and sustain. And in that way, I say sustain so that they can stay in business, right? So when we are looking at how to make this impact in that way, I don't see in my mind when I I'm, I focus on imagery all the time, when I'm thinking about something, I'm always thinking of images more than words usually. And when I see these images in my mind, it's 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 all of these people working at the same time all together. Similarly to when I look out on the ranch and I see our staff and everybody's going in different directions and it's like this most beautiful choreographed um, dance that's happening every day. And that's what I see happening at a community level and then beyond. Because here I am talking to you, I'm in the United States and, and yet we get to have this beautiful conversation because I know there's people all over the world that are craving the ability to connect in this way. And then I also know that my neighbors down the street are so excited to come learn too. And so how beautiful is that to think that people are wanting this regenerative experience for themselves, but that they also haven't maybe known how they can take part, and this goes back to the beginning of our conversation, how they can take part in participating in what the planet needs. And they may not even know what those in-betweens are. Are the in-betweens um, figuring out how to help raise animals or plants in a way that is healthy for the plants and animals, as well as for the soil, as well as for us? There's often a question of how do you ba balance agroecology really with the fact that we need to be working on conservation. So we have this 120 acres and we try to find that balance as well because you will often find me standing in the middle of the entire property, just looking around going, okay, what season is it? What day is it? What is nature trying to tell us right now? Where is the water running? What is blooming right now? What pollinators do I see? What native plants are growing? Who is thriving in this environment other than the people? And how can we help support that to continue? So I'll give you an example of one of the things that we are incorporating here. Normally in a planned grazing effort, when we are doing our holistic planned grazing, we would move the animals you know, from section to section. So you have, and it's all based on an algorithm based on the amount of forage that's available. So if you have animals in a section, they've eaten down what you're going to allow them to eat and then you need to move them on so that they don't overeat an area. You move your electric fencing, you push your animals through and then they have that next section. And then you keep going and going and going until they've made it around the whole property and then you start over again. Well, we are going to be implementing something here starting this year where we are strip grazing. And what that means is the animals will be on a certain section of our property. We will actually skip a section. We will push them beyond that one and go over to one more. So picture kind of like a checkerboard where you have the animals and you skip and you have the animals and you skip. And the reason why we're doing that is because we want the birds that need to nest in those native grasses to be able to still have some available to them in the in-between spaces. We really feel like those edges are where the magic happens and we want to protect that. And so as we go around, then we'll come back the second time around and we'll skip in the opposite direction. So what we had grazed before, we'll leave for conservation the next time around. And that's just one of the many efforts that we will make to be able to find that balance. Wow. 
and so what I heard you talk about like the the also the connection with um all the different people the, the people the staff you know people and and your your also the interaction of the animals with the with nature with the environment right it reminded me of something that's very close to my heart which is the intergenerational piece that often I guess like it's because I'm I'm French and I think in France um all of this is changing we we don't tend to hide our uh elders as much as we do in the UK for example where we just put them in homes I think it's changing quite drastically in France so there are a lot more of care homes and people are put in care homes but when I grew up you know I as a child we had my my great-grandmother living with us and that we found her one day you know she'd passed away whilst we went shopping I remember that distinctively so that intergenerational right so like my parents obviously my my, grand, my grandmother passed away my dad was was very young but my great-grandmother was with us for a long time and I think you I used to love spending time with her because of the story she shared and because of her approach and 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 so I wonder whether you know in the same way that young people can learn from farmers, you know, in a way that perhaps we're disconnected and we don't really get the information from or from the beekeeper. Do you also involve like different generations in, in the work you do? Yes, yes. And this is the most beautiful part of the work really. And it often is not related, meaning in the past, if there was a farming or ranching family, it often got passed down, that business got passed down generation to generation. That's not happening anymore. And that's one of the reasons why I got, it's not that it's not happening anymore at all. It's just not as prevalent. So it's one of the reasons why I got into this work is I had seen the stat that, you know, the average age of a farmer is about 54 and a half. And I thought, well, we need to grow more farmers. <laughs> How are we going to bridge this gap? And why, why is this happening? What, what kinds of obvious we need apprenticeships we need the ability to close this gap and and since we got to this point where the average age is in the 50s then we, we need to hurry <laughs> and so what are we going to do about this and this is where linking up uh, folks who do have that knowledge with those who want to gain that knowledge and bringing those voices together is really important to us. One of the things that we are going to be starting soon is um, hosting a podcast as well. And one of the reasons why we decided to go ahead and start this is, you know, when you're helping solve for a complex problem, which is let's say, filling that gap and helping create opportunities for younger people or anybody to get involved in this work. It takes a minute. It takes more than a minute. It actually takes, well, we're sitting here talking for about an hour, but it takes a little bit to have a conversation about this work and what's involved. And in our social media fast-paced world where people are used to quick TikToks, how do you explain this work in such a short time frame? And we realized that probably hosting podcasts and being able to bring in all of this intergenerational knowledge and these guests and people that would be able to share and us be able to share our journey too is a way for people to sit down, grab a cup of coffee and just have a listen and see if they feel like any of it resonates with them to maybe connect to people like that in their neck of the woods. Because again, we're focused 
focusing on play space. So be inspired by something that you hear, but then go seek that out where you are. Maybe you want to go volunteer on a farm nearby, or maybe you want to go through our training program because you want to offer to schools that you can go in and teach this as an after-school program. Um, our hope is that we're able to help weave that together too. Amazing. So Amy, I could talk to you for hours because I find your work really fascinating, but I'm also conscious of the time. So um, one question I had for you is, is there anything, a question I haven't asked you that you wish I'd asked you? <sighs> well, um, I think that it's fun to think about how people can think of farming as this idyllic work. And so sometimes uh, I don't get asked what the challenges might be. And so uh, not, that, not that we would spend tons of time going through all of that because I like to keep things hopeful, but I think one of the things that I would love to, to just share is farmers are working their livelihood based on what nature has to give every single day. So we have to work in unprotected environments. A lot of times yesterday we were walking out in the fields as lightning was literally striking in our fields because we needed to do things to check and make sure that our animals were okay. And uh, there's lots of things that farmers do to help make sure that food gets on the plates of people so that they can be nourished. And so supporting farmers locally, and that means maybe buying from them directly, visiting their farmers markets, going to, um, um, going to them and saying, hey, how can I volunteer? Is there literally something I can come to the farm and volunteer with? Or do you need help with marketing? Or do you need help in other ways? And so I think I would just encourage anybody who's listening to just reach out to a local farmer and say, hey, I would just really love to help if I can. Amazing. Thank you. Um, and then my my second to last question is, is a question mm -hmm. I ask about uh, if, if the listeners have really enjoyed our conversation and are interested beyond obviously reaching out to you, to taking your courses, all of those things, is there a book that you would recommend that they read to get them started on this journey before they then reach out to you and do, and do your courses? Oh, I have built a literal library that... <laughs> That would almost be embarrassing if someone were to see how big it is, but I am a book lover. I will say that, and, and I know that the listeners can't see it, but I'm going to show you. This regenerative agriculture book by Richard Perkins is quite thick. He uh, runs Ridgedale Permaculture Institute in Sweden, and he has incorporated regenerative agriculture, permaculture, um, and holistic management in a very practical way in this book. So if people are really excited about becoming a farmer or a rancher and want to just start with an enterprise or two and see how they feel about it, and then also just learn what the, the theories and the practices are, this book has it all. So that would be my, that would be my biggest. Wonderful, and we, put, we can put the link on, on that. Um, and then my final question is, um, out of this conversation, is there one thing that stands out um, for you, like a, a key message that you're taking or you would like our listeners to take away from this conversation or both? <laughs> And, and. <laughs> but, yes, I, I enjoyed you bringing up the fact that um, how important weaving is. And I often think about that as networking when you're connecting with other people. But when you think about it as weaving, it really is networking almost feels like it stops 
you, you connect and then it ends and weaving feels like, oh, how do I continuously um, think about how we can continue this, how we can build a relationship, how we can help each other and amplify each other's work. And so for me, I think I'm going to be walking away from this thinking about how I can focus on the actual weaving more. So thank you for that. No, thank you. Thanks for sharing. And to me, it's like also post podcast when you start posting and people comment that's like going beyond and it's continuing that weaving right mm -hmm. because you right. just continue the conversation so it is quite exciting yes thank you so much for today this was fun no thank you thank you for your time and for sharing so you know selflessly and and openly and in, in such a beautiful way and and I truly love the work that you do thank you Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. You can also reach me via Twitter at FlourishingHE on LinkedIn or you can join our private Facebook group Flourishing Education. All the links are easily available on anchor.fm. Thank you so much and I hope you are flourishing. Bye for now.